0: Just when I thought I was out, they pulled me back
1: in. I got so much trouble on my mind, refuse to lose, here's your ticket, Here, these tracks get wicked, momentum resisted, traders tight-fisted, twisted, cease and desisted, sentiment shifted, hawkish talk, sellers squawk, grab those gains and take a walk to the safe side, operation override, don't go run and hide, time to decide, are you in it for the ups, can you handle the downs, market gotta spin and round and round, like a record baby, no time to clown, we got a car for clowns, it's way in the back, the front car's for the players, Who like to grow stacks, long-term investors who can take it to the rack, weather the storms, know when to attack, when to sit back, when to pass, when to press, when to ride real smooth on the Investopedia Express. Easy come, easy go, especially when we are in the midst of this kind of uncertainty. The U.S. stock market's four-week win streak came to an end last week with all major indexes wearing red. The NASDAQ, where the gains have been the most robust, fell the most, dropping more than 2.5% for the week. While the S&P 500 fell a little over 1%, futures to start off this week are looking red too. Volatility, which had been taking a long summer snooze, woke up and it was kind of hungry as the VIX, or Volatility Index, broke back above 20 for the first time in several weeks. The expiration of $2 trillion in options last Friday, obligations to either roll over existing bets that the markets will rise or fall in the near-term future, added to the volatility, and given the sell-off, it looks like a lot of options traders pulled their calls, bets that the market will rise in the near term off the table. Short sellers were back in late summer style too, as a basket of some of the most highly shorted stocks tracked by Bloomberg fell 6% for the week, the best week for short sellers since March of 2020. They apparently don't think that summer's over yet. Among the most shorted stocks in the market, according to S3 partners, AMC, GameStop, Beyond Meat, Canoe, Lordstown Motors, and Lucid. There's a couple themes going on in there tough talk out of the Federal Reserve may have been behind the cold front that blew over the market's recent hot streak. St. Louis Fed President James Bullard, one of the more hawkish members of the Federal Open Market Committee, said the Fed will continue its aggressive rate hiking plans in the near term until inflation loses some steam. It's not that we didn't know that, but maybe we were lulled into the lullaby that the better-than-expected slate of good news of late may have trimmed the Fed's talons. The FOMC will meet next on interest rates on September 21st, so a lot can happen between now and then. Fed officials and top econ wonks, they're all gathering in Jackson Hole, Wyoming this week, as they typically do every summer, so we'll see if that fresh mountain air calms them down a little bit. But rather than cast our hopes for more tempered monetary policy in the future, let's pull out our charts and look at the recent rally with some historical perspective. As of last week, the S&P 500 had recovered half of the bear market losses for the year. According to our pal Ryan Dietrich, now the chief strategist at the Carson Group, the S&P 500 has never moved back to new lows after this has happened. Never. In fact, Dietrich says, a year later, the market was higher every single time, an average of 19.5% higher. Does that mean it'll happen again this time? Nope. But it would be an anomaly if that didn't happen. And, as of last Friday, more than 90% of the components in the S&P 500 were above their 50-day moving average. This isn't something you see in bear market rallies. Also, the S&P 500 was up 12.9% for the month. That's 21 trading days. Many of the best months in history of the S&P 500 took place during major lows or in the middle of bullish moves. That's when we don't sell when the market's in a free fall. The times that didn't pan out? 2001, when the dot com bubble burst, 1946, coming out of World War II, and 1973, just as a global oil crisis was spilling all over into the markets forget about bulls and bears, this summer may belong to the whales, those gigantic hedge funds and activist investors who like to throw their weight around when the seas get choppy. Last week, we got a peek into the 13F filings, those SEC filings that reveal where hedge funds have been placing their bets. And believe you me, some big bets were being made. Among the findings, activist investor Elliott Investment Management took a stake in Pinterest and sold part of its position in Twitter. Ray Dalio's Bridgewater Associates started a position in EV maker Rivian and Amazon. The Gates Foundation, Bill Gates' philanthropic arm, bought stakes in online auto dealers Vroom and Carvana. David Tepper's Appaloosa took new positions in Salesforce, Alibaba, and Netflix. And Dan Loeb's Third Point Investors revealed a 1 million share stake in Disney and intends to buy more. The activist hedge fund heavyweight is pushing the Magic Kingdom to make some serious changes, including spinning off ESPN, one of the biggest parts of Disney's entertainment division. But perhaps nobody was busier than Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger, and the Berkshire Hathaway crew. Berkshire boosted its stake in Activision, where it now owns 68.4 million shares, making it one of the largest investors in the video game company. It also shed its stake in Verizon, hanging up on that telecom giant but that was just an appetizer. Berkshire Hathaway disclosed last week that it has received permission from regulators to purchase as much as 50% of oil drilling giant Occidental Petroleum. Berkshire has been loading up on Occidental shares all year, amassing roughly 20% of the company's stock. Occidental shares jumped 10% last week after those filings crossed, and the company's shares have risen about 146% this year, easily the best performing stock in the S&P all year long buffett and munger love oil and energy stocks and apparently they love video game makers now too Let's get set up for the week ahead, An earnings season will slowly fade as the summer sun sets, but not before we hear from widely held companies including Zoom Video Communications, Macy's, Nordstrom, NVIDIA, Salesforce, and Dollar Store, among others. For the second quarter of 2022, the blended earnings growth rate for the S&P 500 is 6.7%. Six out of the 11 sectors of the S&P are reporting year-over-year growth in earnings for the quarter, but the energy sector takes the cake with the highest earnings growth of all, a gushing 299% the energy sector is reporting an aggregate year-over-year increase in earnings of $47.7 billion, while the S&P 500 overall is reporting an aggregate year-over-year earnings increase of just $31.1 billion. In fact, if the energy sector is excluded, according to facts the S&P 500 will be reporting a year-over-year decline in earnings of 3.7% rather than the increase of 6.7%. On the economic front, inflation is still center stage. On Friday, the Bureau of Economic Analysis will release the latest Personal Consumption Expenditures Index, the PCE, for July. That's the Fed's favorite inflation gauge because it measures the price changes in goods and services used for household consumption. PCE price inflation is expected to have moderated slightly in July following a 1% increase last June that marked the biggest monthly jump since September of 2005 we can take lower gas prices if it comes down last month on a yearly basis pce prices accelerated 6.8% in june the fastest annual rate since january of 1982 Meanwhile, core PCE prices, which exclude food and energy costs, are projected to have risen at a 4.7 annual rate in July, decelerating slightly from that 4.8% rate in June. While energy prices have come down considerably, shelter and electricity prices continue to rise. And as we said earlier, Fed officials and global economists are heading for the hills, actually the Grand Tetons in Wyoming, for their annual retreat. While no policy decisions are expected, the tone from Chair Powell and other Fed officials could shift investor sentiment if they keep saying that the risks of inflation are more significant than the risk of a hard landing for the U.S. economy. The Fed is expected to raise the target rate for the federal funds rate by 50 or 75 basis points in September and follow with another 25 or 50 point hikes in November and December. And come September 1st, the Fed will start reducing its balance sheet, selling off its $4 trillion chest of government bonds and mortgage-backed securities, beginning with a sale of about $90 billion dollars worth next week. Are there any buyers out there? The financial industry, like every other industry, has its fair share of influencers. People who use their knowledge, their wit, their charm and their power of social media to spread their messages in the world of money. There are plenty of pretenders and plenty of contenders, but there are only a few members of the royal family of influencers, those who have been able to continue to amplify their platforms, grow their followings, and stay true to the game. Haley Sachs, aka Mrs. Dow Jones, is one of them. She was born onto the internet in 2018 with that name with one mission, to understand and teach finance to people the way they really want to learn it. She's body, she's brilliant, and she's bad to the bone, and she's our special guest this week, On the Investopedia Express. Welcome, Mrs. Dow Jones. So good to have you here.
0: I love it. I'm body. It's giving hair body face, but B-A-W-D-Y. I know. Don't worry. I know.
1: know. You're a little fresh, so we had to we had to give you the props. You had
0: to bring it. You had to be a little saucy. I'm here for it though.
1: I know you are. So I gotta ask you, what made you do what you do?
0: It was actually not a choice, it was a calling. I was born Mrs. Dow Jones. It just took me till I was like 26 to realize it. money was my biggest wound. And they always say that by leaning into your biggest weakness, that's where the brilliance and like the art comes from. And so, you know, instead of avoiding it, I ran towards it and built an empire.
1: You sure did.
0: I sure did.
1: But, but it's not like you built it overnight. So how did you make it happen? A lot of people want to do what you're doing. A lot of people think they're doing what you're doing, but you got over 400,000 people who are following you across your platforms. I've watched you do this over the last few years and just been fascinated with the fact that you're manifesting it, you're really doing it, and you're actually helping people to boot. So, But how did you actually make it happen? I don't need every step, but I know it wasn't easy.
0: When I started, Caleb, there were no financial influencers. So it was not intentional. It really came from my own need to learn about money and feeling completely disinterested in the people in the space and the vibe in this space. I was like, honey, I do not want to be cutting spending and investing. Like All the people who are doing this seem super lame. I will stay with... The people that I admire who obviously don't talk about money because no one talks about it in pop culture and, you know, it is considered so taboo. And then you reach a point, I reached a point where I had my first big girl job and they asked me questions about my 401k and about health insurance And I realized in that moment, like, whoa, I can no longer run from this. I really do have to lean in, start to teach myself, start to teach others, use social media as my platform, as the place where I was, you know, putting these lessons and it took off. But at that point, it wasn't even like liquidity and not your father's broker and all these places like, well, those were like the OGs with me coming up and I did not even know that they existed. And then we found our way to each other. So it was really the early days. And I just remember having a moment where I thought, no one likes money, but everyone likes memes. And so I started to make finance memes because I thought, if, Haley, if you're actually an entertainer, then you can make anything entertaining.
1: Meanwhile, this was exploding across the internet almost across every other category, but nobody had applied it really the way to finance and investing the way that you have and a lot of way that a lot of others are doing it now. We had Kyla Scanlon on not long ago, obviously the trapper. These people are creating a new language of money and in doing so in your part of this group, you're teaching people sort of the new way to money with some of the same old fundamental lessons that are important, but money's changed and you've been able to help people understand how to change with it. How have you been able to do that?
0: I mean, first of all, I love those people. I think that it comes a lot from mm-hmm. my soul. Like, I really believe that what I do is art, and like, I'm so driven by helping people and by my community. And I remember I'm not the person who was, you know, the, I always talk about like the lemony millionaire, like the 11 year old who like had her own business and was like flipping it. It's like, no, I was exactly who my audience is when they find me, which is clueless, intimidated, living with fear and shame, and have sort of given up on themselves and their ability to understand and to learn this stuff. And so I'm here to make it fun, I'm here to make it entertaining, and I'm here to teach.
1: Well, you got over 400,000 people, as I said, following you across every one of your platforms or everywhere, and you're constantly interacting with them through those platforms. So what are the most common questions you keep getting asked over and over? What are the themes? In our, is it both a male and female audience? Is it mixed? What's the sort of the proportion of our folks who are paying attention to you and what are they looking for? What kind of answers are they seeking?
0: I would say I'm like three-fourths women, but I got a good quarter in there that are male, which they will let you know. If I ever post anything that is too female, they're like, hey, what about your male followers? Which I love because since the beginning, I've been like, I am not a tampon commercial. As a woman, I really hate being marketed to as a woman. So I was like, if I'm going to do this, I just want to be funny. And I believe that like, you know, humor doesn't really have a gender It just is. And so I really look at that as like my superpower, using humor to teach people about finance. And really the questions that they have are, they run the gamut. It could be, how do I start saving? How do I start investing with such little money? Do I need a health savings account? So Roth IRA, how do I invest my 401k? Um, You know, like things that you, that are in the zeitgeist of this world, obviously these like, Fundamental financial questions that are never answered in school—that people are, get to a certain point and are really curious about—and then, of course, there's always the question about what's going on in the media and the get-rich-quick schemes that seem to blow up every few years. So it could be NFTs, it could be, of course, crypto. Should I get this credit card? Is this a good deal? And then I also I do a lot of career stuff as well, because obviously you will not be able to grow wealth if you're not making money. Money. And women, especially historically, we do not negotiate. And so it's been really important to give my followers the tools to stand up for themselves in the workplace and get paid what they are worth, Caleb, which I hope you're doing at Investopedia. I hope anyone who's listening to this from Investopedia knows that Caleb just. Gave me a little wink and told me that you should ask for a raise.
1: (laughs) Thanks a lot. See me in my (laughs) office. No, but these are all critical steps. And especially, you know, that the saving investing conundrum. Once people finally, if they can, they get on their feet and they start to earn a little bit of money like you did. They're always asking themselves how Where, what should I do first? Where do you fall on that? Saving, investing, or does it depend on where you are in your career, where you are in your life stages? How do you counsel folks that way?
0: I look at it as I have a full curriculum. I have a full university called Finance is Cool University. And I really believe that personal finance is three basic steps. So the first step is really that moment of inventory And of taking account of obviously what's going on, which can be the hardest step for a lot of people. And then we talk a lot, I mean, when you get more sophisticated or down the rabbit hole more of finance, you learn about like hedging and diversification. But really, those terms apply to your personal finances too, because I believe that you should be paying off your high interest rate debt and saving your emergency fund at the same time. And obviously there are some people who that will not feel comfortable for, into which I say, okay, just save your emergency fund or just focus on your debt because they're like so overwhelmed by one of those But those are really like the beginning factors and then taking advantage of everything that the government is giving you to invest. That is tax advantage, because trust me, honey, Uncle Sam will be coming for your money. And so you got to make sure that you are flying underneath that radar as much as you possibly can.
1: Yeah, those are key lessons to learn. And a lot of folks don't realize that until it comes time to sell and they realize they're going to get taxed on those gains over time. So huge stuff. Let's talk a little bit more about the online course, because this is a big deal. You're not just giving advice uh, over the gram or or through the TikToks anymore or through Twitter. You've created a curriculum here. We've done this at Investopedia. That is not an easy thing to do. What went into that and what can folks find if they go to it right now?
0: Thank you for asking. Yeah, Finance is Cool. University is my baby. I Truly, it's been so amazing. It's like a best selling course on Teachable. Like, it's doing so well. The results really speak for themselves. And it came from the need of like just having more time with my students to teach them. Like, ultimately, Instagram, social media, YouTube, all this is so amazing. But, like, really to get control of your finances from the beginning like taking control like it really is so helpful to walk through with someone step by step and then give them those tools along the way so that you can amplify their results so i have created i had always been using for my personal finances this like sacred google sheet called the money book that had, you know, using the 50-30-20 budget, which people are pretty familiar with, Elizabeth Warren invented it, you know, 50% on needs, 30% on wants, 20% future you. Using that, you're able to input your spending now and your income and see where you stand compared to it. And then it like automatically tells you like where you need to make changes and then gives you space for future months how to implement those changes so it's really sophisticated and cool and you know I've been talking about it on social media for a while people are super interested in it and I thought well I can't just give them the money book I have to show them how to use it and like teach them these different steps and you know I have this three level financial plan that I use that I encourage people to work through before they start investing cuz Caleb you know better than anyone. People love to throw their money in that stock market, honey.
1: I know it. You and I and you and I have talked about Great mistakes that I've made along the way. I'm wondering, you called me out on a couple and I'm happy to admit it. I'm terrible at it. That's why I play it real, real slow and real boring. What about you? What investing mistakes have you made that were able to turn into teachable moments to help you become a better investor and a better teacher?
0: Well, first of all, I'm the most risk averse person in the whole world. So like I will have FOMO if like my cousin is telling me about like a crypto startup, but then I ultimately won't do anything about it because I am like scared. So that's one thing. But also, I got fully addicted to buying individual stocks at a certain point to which I only saw losses. And I was like, wow, everything that I have said and that I've learned actually is true. Like, It does not serve me to buy individual stocks. I would be like, oh, I love this brand at the grocery store. So I should just... Impulsively, like, buy like $600 worth of shares in that. Like, I wasn't playing with big bucks, but it w- just became this sort of game for me. And I was like, wow, I got to shut this down. So, what I learned in that moment was, honey, you got to diversify and you got to put limits on how much you want to take risk with. Because now I really only take risks with 5% of my portfolio and I can have fun with that. And I can. Take those risks, but I can know, okay, I'm set up for the future. And I really am going to be able to buy my biodynamic farm in St. Lucia during my retirement. Maybe sooner.
1: From your lips to God's ears, I can see you there right now. We know, Haley, that finance and pop culture are intertwined now. They weren't as much before, but right now there's this moment, whether it's music, whether it's art with NFTs, whether it's movies or TV shows. I'm wondering about your favorites. You're such a, uh, you know, you're you're right in the middle of the zeitgeist of pop culture. What are your favorites? What do you love? What are you watching? And what do you recommend?
0: Okay, I'm obsessed with loot on Apple TV with Maya Rudolph. It is basically a show about Mackenzie Bezos, but like a comedy about like a billionaire's wife who like fully helped her husband build the company from scratch, like made the logo with him, like basement vibes. And then they become uber successful. He leaves her for like a younger woman and she is left with billions and billions of dollars, becomes one of the world's richest women and goes heavy into philanthropy. And it is So good. Like, I have not watched a show with this much fervor. I can't even tell you what it's like old school TV watching Caleb. This is not binge. This is like I'm waiting for Friday for that new episode to drop. Like I am edge of my seat. Like I need to be in this universe. I want to rewatch an episode. Like, you guys have got to watch a loot. It is so good. It's like so interesting about money too. And I don't want to give anything away. Because obviously I am fully caught up, but it's it really brings up some interesting questions and is also a riot. So Jador Loot, obviously, we love a little industry. We love a succession vibe. And then besides that, I am a big reader.
1: I gotta know who are Mrs. Dow Jones' greatest influencers. Who sort of do you look up to or who have you looked up to that has helped you sort of position yourself where you are today?
0: Okay, the people that I look up to online are I definitely love Katie Storino. I think she's fabulous. She's like a plus-size influencer who really does her own thing. And I think that her feed really just like brings so much goodness to the world. I also really love Black Hustlers Club. I don't know if you follow them, but it's just such inspirational content about like leveling up. I love Sarah Blakely and Jesse Itzler they're amazing. They really influence me. Then I also really love Ashley Longshore Art. She's like this really cool artist. She lives in New Orleans and is just like an incredible painter and is so wacky and cool. So I just like following like characters and people who are doing their own thing and who I feel like are super happy because they're living a life that they earned and that they really wanted. And then their dream became their reality. That's what I like to see.
1: You know, Haley, that we're a site built on our financial terms. Our dictionary is very popular among so many of our readers. I'm wondering, what is Mrs. Dow Jones' favorite financial or investing term or word and why?
0: My favorite one is definitely dead cat bounce, just because it's like, why is that a term? Like who made that? Can you, do you actually know the, do you have like a, a video of the day that was created.
1: We actually have a term of the day that actually explains it, and one of the reasons it's sick to think about it is that it came from World War II pilots talking about whether a cat would bounce from the height that they were flying their plane, but there's a bunch of other explanations for how that term came about. I don't think that term ages very well, but I do love that you love it, and it actually is a great name for a, my next punk band, in, in case I do happen to form one. I may go with that name. You, does that
0: mean that you had a previous one?
1: <laughs> no, that was a, that was a reggae band in the past, but i'm moving I'm moving more towards punk in my in as I get older. Hey, I have a trivia question for you. Maybe you know this, maybe you don't. We love Mrs. Dow Jones. We love your name, but I'm wondering how much you know about the original Mrs. Dow and Mrs. Jones from the Charles Dow and Edward Jones fame of the Dow Jones indexes.
0: Oh, how much do I know about their lady loves? Yes, Charles, the journalist. you know, I should know more. But they're a little bit of my competition.
1: I did a little research, a little internet research. am not going to say I went very deep on this because there isn't a lot of detail on them. But in 1881, Charles Dow married Lucy M. Russell and her daughter by a previous marriage who became Charles Dow's stepdaughter. That's all we know about Lucy Russell, who became Lucy Dow. And then in 1923, Edward Jones married Ursula Griseldyke. They had four children and... David, who passed away as a child, Martha, and Edward Ted Jones. And her family, Ursula's family, happened to own breweries, including Stag Beer. And this was all before Prohibition. This goes pretty deep here. Jones, Edward Jones, persuaded the family to take the company's stock public. And when his father-in-law died in 1945, Jones became president and chairman of the board of that company. And he started working both at Edward Jones, the investment house, and at the Stag brewery and I thought that was fascinating we never hear about Mrs. Dow and Mrs. Jones even though we have Mrs. Dow Jones here front and center with us right now that's a little internet research for you but I thought you might like to know that as you go on with your fame and name
0: thank you I uh I will take that to heart and I will light a candle today in their honor
1: Let's celebrate the original Mrs. Dow and Mrs. Jones as we celebrate Mrs. Dow Jones. So good to have you on the Investopedia Express. We're big fans and we just wish you all the success in the world. Thanks so much for joining us.
0: I wish you all the success and um, I hope that you become the next Joe Rogan.
1: It's terminology time, time for us to get smart with the investing term we need to know this week. And this week's term comes to us from Dr. Stocks, who hit us up on Instagram. The good doctor suggests options assignment this week, and we like that term given all the action in the options market lately. According to my favorite website, an options assignment represents the seller's obligation to fulfill the terms of the contract by either selling or buying the underlying security. At the exercise or strike price. The corresponding seller of the option is not determined when a buyer opens an option trade, but only at the time that an option holder decides to exercise their right to buy the stock. So, an option seller with open positions is matched with the exercising buyer via an automated lottery. The randomly selected seller is then assigned to fulfill the buyer's rights. This is known as an option assignment. Once assigned, the writer, the seller of the option, will have the obligation to sell if it's a call option or buy if it's a put option the designated number of shares of stock at the agreed-upon price, the strike price. For instance, if the writer sold calls, they would be obligated to sell the stock, and the process is often referred to as having the stock called away. For puts, the buyer of the option's sell stock puts stock shares to the writer in the form of a short-sold position. Smart suggestion, Dr. Stock. Some Investopedia socks are headed your way. Wear them in the operating room or when you're trading. They'll make you smarter. And folks, if you want to learn more about options, look up our options tutorial on Investopedia. (music) We're going to let Jack Bogle take us out this week yet again. The legendary investor, the Vanguard founder, and the godfather of index investing always sues me at a time like this. Here's Bogle in a 2018 interview with CNBC's Bill Griffith and Melissa Lee talking about the power and nuance of buying and holding. Buy and hold for a stock is one thing. Buy and hold the U.S. stock market is quite a different
0: one. You know, what do we have going for us in the U.S. stock market? Leave aside how hard it is to pick the winners, how few people really ever heard of Amazon 25 years ago, and uh, to say nothing of Google, uh, maybe a little more than that, maybe 30 years ago. So, if you hold the
1: stock market, you will not to be corny, Bill, but you will grow with America. The correlation between the long-term growth of America's gross domestic product, so-called GDP, and and the stock market is you know, something like 95, but the annual correlation of, of the, those two things is probably 20. <laughs> so. You know, you're making a good long-term bet, but short-term betting is just uh, not a good way to go. Wise words indeed, but we as investors have to constantly ask ourselves, why are we investing here in the first place? If you're in it to build long-term wealth like Vogel preached, by all means, buy and hold, buy often, and stay in the market. It's time in the market, not timing the market, that matters. Special thanks to Mrs. Dow Jones for joining us this week and to all of you for riding along. We'll post the transcripts to our conversation, including her great recommendations and links to Mrs. Dow Jones' investing course, as well as links to the reports we cited throughout the show. You'll find all that in the show notes wherever you listen to this podcast and on investopedia.com slash The Express Podcast. We're coming up on show number 100, folks, quite a milestone for this little engine that could. We are so grateful to all of our listeners and all of our guests for helping to make this happen. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And we'll talk again a little further on down the line.